Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everyone? It's Michael Scotto, HoopsHype.com's NBA writer and host of the Hoops Hype podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Howard Beck, senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the host of the Crossover podcast. And we're going to discuss Sports Illustrated's new book, The Greatest Show on Earth, The History of the Los Angeles Lakers Winning Tradition. And Howard and I are going to preview the book, uh, well, which is going to include some lineage from Lakers stars dating back to the 1960s to now. Uh, certainly a lot to discuss there. They've had plenty of stars over the decades and some fun behind the scenes stories uh, from Howard, who covered the Lakers during the Shaq and Kobe era from 1997 to 2004 and the New York Knicks locally here uh, from 2004 to 2013 and much more. Howard, I appreciate you joining me on the line. Uh, what's going on your way, my man? Doing well, Michael. How are you? It's good to be with you. Appreciate that, brother. Um, it's been good to see you at the arena and, and get the new season going. Um, you know, I, I touched on uh, the new book that Sports Illustrated has out. And, um, you know, for the Lakers, uh, once again, they are loaded with stars. Uh, but we've seen different results so far this year uh, a little bit with Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, and LeBron James. Similar struggles to last year, but compared to other times that these guys have had stars, um, it has not gone as well. I, I don't know if we've seen them struggle with these type of stars maybe since mm, the Pow, um when Kobe and Powell were with uh, Steve Nash and, and Dwight Howard. C can you think of any other uh, more recent example? No, and you know it's funny because you know obviously we'll we'll talk about the book a bit, but the the Lakers as a franchise, this is a franchise that is about stars, right? And you know NBA history, we know stars drive the league, stars drive championships, and the Lakers are the epitome of this model, and they have this knack for they they just they're a magnet for superstar talent. But more often than not, it goes pretty well, right? Now, like they also had some fallow years in between the Kobe, the tail end of the Kobe era, and when LeBron came to kind of rescue them, and they really didn't have anybody to hang their hat on for a while. But it's kind of this idea that the Lakers will always get their guys. But I think there's actually a danger there, and, and what we're seeing this season is the danger, where you basically over-index on the stars, where you think stars are the only way forward, and it doesn't matter which stars or how they fit or whether they fit or what stage of their career they're at. We just want more star power. And this is what they've done. So when we when we look at the like there's the micro analysis of just this season or the last year plus since acquiring Westbrook and all of the challenges and difficulties that this particular group of stars uh together has presented them. But then in the in the bigger picture, it's but this is kind of the Laker way, right? If a Westbrook is available, you go and get him. If Anthony Davis is available, you go and get him. And to, to your 
analogy, yeah, the last time they really struggled by over-indexing on stars and just kind of like, um, you know, overindulging like we do it at, you know, Thanksgiving where, you you know, you, you could have just stopped after the third helping of turkey and cranberry sauce and stuffing and you decided <laughs> to go for the fourth round. That's Russell Westbrook. Now that was adding Dwight Howard and Steve Nash to Kobe and Powell at the time that they did that. Now there's other things that went wrong then, right? Um, Dwight had the back injury. Steve Nash had back issues. Uh, and you know, people often look back also to 2003-4, my final season on the Laker beat, when they got Carl Malone and Gary Payton to go yes. with Shaq and Kobe. And they 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 look at that one like, oh, see, it doesn't work. That team went to the finals, people. I don't, I don't know why I have to remind folks of this periodically, but the 2003-4 team that supposedly was, you know, an example of having too many stars and it failing under its own weight, that team went to the NBA Finals. <laughs> that is a tremendous accomplishment for most teams, most franchises. Um, and it well, didn't fail. We can get into it. It did not fail because they had four stars. It failed because of the original two. Certainly a little different than uh, advancing to a play-in tournament. Oh, yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Yes, it's, I, I will say this: your Russell Westbrook analogy um, about Thanksgiving and uh, the fourth helping of uh, turkey. I, 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 when I looked at Westbrook and the Lakers at this point, you think of star guards that kind of begin to taper off into their early thirties and and the situations they were in. Like I just remember it. I feel like uh, the, the guy that sticks out to me was Allen Iverson and how things were going. I just remember him towards the end with the the Grizzlies. And it's almost like a moment in time where I don't think any NBA fan really ever wants to remember that that happened. You kind of want to erase it from your memory. I feel like um, the Westbrook experience with the Lakers, um, statistically last season was okay, but if you watched it, it, it wasn't what you thought it would be, certainly not what the Lakers envisioned from a team uh, concept. But, I mean, to your point about all the stars that the Lakers have had, um, that's pretty much uh, what the new book from Sports Illustrated is about. It's, it's taking a look at the lineage of those Lakers stars dating back to the 1960s, you know, going from Elgin Baylor to now with guys like LeBron James, and, and you were in the middle of it with the Shaq and Kobe era. Um, I wanted to kind of give you the platform here to to give the listeners and the readers who will see the transcript on hoopshype.com a little bit of a preview of what they can expect from that book and all those years of Lakers history. Yeah, no, and thank you for that. So, the, the, the book, I, I, I got to say up front, um, I did not write the book. I did not edit the book. I did have the honor of writing the introduction, the forward for the book um and one of my pieces for SI uh about Kobe is the is the last chapter of the book but what I love about this book is that you know I grew up on Sports Illustrated um and I grew up on all these writers and uh some of these bylines predate um my existence on this earth but this is a who's who of the best writers writing about a who's who of all the greatest Lakers. So um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a great book. This is, a, it's from SI and triumph books collaborating. If you, if you love the Lakers, or if you just love NBA history, I think it's great. But also if you just love great sports writing, um, there's pieces by Frank DeFord, who's, you know, my all time sports writing idol. So there's Frank DeFord pieces in here. There's, you know, Jack McCallum, Phil Taylor, Chris Ballard, Lee Jenkins, um, and all the great Lakers, right? So there's, you know, 
pieces in here, and these are all ripped from the pages of SI, right? These are this is reprints of, of some of the greatest stories done on these stars. But it's Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem, Magic, Shaq, Kobe, LeBron. Um, all of them are covered in here at, at some point, and it's uh, you know some of the best writing done on these guys, of course, because it's it's Sports Illustrated. Um, it's a great book. It's it's very cool, and of course, because it's SI, also you know we've had incredible photography. Magazine's also been known for that over the decades, and so there's great um, you know photos throughout as well. Um, it's just a really nice uh, compilation, a nice keepsake, uh, especially for the Laker fans in your life. We've got what a uh, Two two months, to have sixty shopping days till Christmas. I think so. Um, if uh, if folks want to go check that out, uh, I actually have a promo code that folks can use too. If you if you order it through the Triumph Books um, website, so if folks go to triumphbooks.com, do a search on the greatest show on earth and find the book. Uh, if you enter Lakers thirty, there's a thirty percent discount for the purchase, uh, but only through the Triumph Books website. Nice. I'll certainly include that in the transcript. Um, when uh, I understand while you were writing the foreword um, of the book, there obviously are other stories from other writers. I'm curious, you mentioned that obviously this predates your existence on earth. Uh, Lord knows it, it certainly predates mine. Um, <laughs> what I was curious of is, were there maybe favorite sections you had of the book? And were there stories that maybe you learned that you didn't know already? Um, I, I mean, listen, there's a lot I didn't know. I, I can't give you something off the top of my head, but, you know, Elgin Baylor played, you know, before my time, uh, of, of, of awareness of, of the NBA or certainly, you know, uh, of, of, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure Elgin was still playing. I was probably, maybe I was a baby when Elgin was still playing. Um, but guys like Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and Wilt Chamberlain, who, I knew the names, I knew the legends, I knew this, maybe I'd seen the stats, you know, I'd, I'd heard stories, um, maybe seen a grainy clip or two. And because, you know, like the Elgin Baylor piece, the first one in here written by Frank DeFord, Frank DeFord, one of just the all-time greats at just getting into a a space, a a, a venue, a person, a, a moment in time, and just exploring every little facet of it and all the little nooks and crannies of, of, uh, that atmosphere of the room. Like it's just, it, it, it's just so vivid. It really brings it to life. So, um, Elgin Baylor is actually really funny. So basketball aside, Elgin Baylor as a personality is, is just kind of funny in his own unique way. And, um, and it has just a unique uh, sense of a uh, kind of, uh, intellect and curiosity about him, the way he views the world and the kinds of, of conversations he would start on the team bus or whatever. And you find those things when you read some of these stories. And and the other thing too, Michael, I'll point out is just that, you know, you and I cover the NBA in 2022 and you've been doing this for a few years. I've been doing it for a few years longer than that. But in the time that you and I have covered this league, we do not cover it during a time where they had the access that say Frank DeFord had back in the sixties and seventies, or that Jack McCallum had in the eighties and nineties. Um, when, you know, teams were not flying charters yet. They were flying commercially. So sports writers would be on the plane with the teams. Um, and they'd be in the terminal because they'd, they'd be flying out of just, you know, the same gates that everybody else uses. So there was there was just more time around teams and players and a different level of of, of rapport and, and trust. Um, and so that, that access and, you know, guys 
actually being in the locker room. Like we go in the locker rooms now, but you know, pregame, there aren't that many guys there most of the time. Right. But used to be back in the day, if you went to, into a pregame locker room during media access time, they're all just sitting there, you know, ready to chat. Um, so there's just, there's, there's a lot of rich detail and a depth to some of the older stories, especially um, that, you know, it makes me a little wistful actually as a sports writer going, man, like, if only I had the kind of access and the time around these guys to tell the kinds of stories that they could tell back then. Um, but again, that is also the beauty of the book. You, you really get uh, some incredible depth on, on all these players. Oh, I, I certainly uh, later in the podcast want to touch on the differences of a beat writer's life, even from when you were with covering the Lakers from 97, to now, um, you know, I had a brief time doing it with the athletic, with the Brooklyn nets, um, even though predominantly I've mostly done uh, national stuff uh, in my time covering the league, but um, it's certainly different for sure. And I'm, and I'm looking forward to getting into that with you. Um, uh, you know, all those stories certainly sound interesting. There's a lot of different dynamics when you talk about the, the stars that the Lakers have had. And for me growing up and you being in the midst of it, Maybe it's my own bias, but personally, I think the Shaq and Kobe era uh, was certainly one of the most uh, important in terms of obviously production of winning on the court, but also uh, the dynamic of their relationship. Um, and everybody always compares having a big guy and a wing player, you know, the next, who's the next Shaq and Kobe. Um, with that in mind, Howard, you you talked about having that access Obviously, a different time uh, from 1997 to 2004 than it is now. Being around Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant on a daily basis as a beat writer, I was curious, what were some of your favorite stories from the two of them behind the scenes that maybe people wouldn't know? Certainly something they wouldn't see you know, in a game or a box score, something behind the scenes. Oh, behind the scenes. Um, I mean, in general, you know, obviously there was the tension between them, right? So at any given year from 97 to 04, which the years that I covered, so that's year two of, of their era, right? Like they come together in 96. I start on the beat in 97. Um, I left LA for New York in 2004, which is happens to coincide with when they broke them up. Um, when Shaq had basically said, I'm, I'm, I'm done, demanded a trade. And um, Kobe, of course, had the threat of free agency um, to get what he wanted then too. Um, whether or not Kobe is actually responsible for Shaq being traded is a whole other topic unto itself. But so that seven years, you know, there were moments that were really light with both of those guys. And then, then there were just, you know, moments of, of extreme tension. But the fact is, as everybody knows, Shaq is just an overgrown kid. Like to this day, even in his role on TNT, like you still see it. Um, and I mean that in, in the most you know endearing way possible. Um, Shaq just loves to be the life of the party, loves practical jokes. Um, and he's just a people person. And so the, if, when you ask behind the scenes, I think of just moments between Shaq and us, the, the, the beat writers where, you know, things would kind of get like mock contentious sometimes. Sometimes things were actually contentious too, but get mock contentious where, you know, he'd be getting a little snippy about what we were asking him about, or he'd get snippy because he'd think that, 
we were going to, you know, that the, the media and he would take it out on us, the beat writers, because we're the ones standing in front of him every day, but that he, you know, he's not going to win MVP. And so he'd say, you know, I remember one year he's like, you guys have already given it away. You've already given it away because he, you know, he was, it was the year that Jason Kidd was, was reviving the nets. And he thought for sure the kid was going to win it. And at midseason, that was all the buzz. I think Duncan ended up winning it that year. In fact, not Jason Kidd, but, um, but Shaq would get into it with us. And then he'd have these moments, right. Where, uh, so the, a, a couple of quick ones. Tim Kawakami was the beat writer for a couple of those years for the LA Times. Uh, Tim now, of course, with The Athletic, doing a phenomenal workout in the Bay Area. Um, Kawakami was pretty aggressive. Um, yeah, we, we we both were, but but t- Tim had a, a way of kind of getting under Shaq's skin sometimes with the way he was asking certain questions. And Shaq got in this snit where for, I don't know how many days running it was, but it would be like, he was just kind of being snipey and uh, ask me a good question, ask me a good question. And then one day, Kawakami asked a question. I don't remember what it was about, but we're, we're there in the Staples Center locker room. I, like I can picture where we were standing. Kawakami asked some question. Shaq was kind of, you know, done this thing where he was like kind of looking down. He was sitting in his locker looking down and he, he looked up and his, his eyes got this look in them <laughs> and he smiles and he goes, Kawakami asked a good question. And he leaps up and he grabs Tim Kawakami and he starts pogo sticking him around the locker room. Like just imagine a person, in this case, Tim Kawakami, just being completely enveloped by this seven-pound mammoth of a human being and just almost disappearing into Shaq as Shaq is, is hopping up and down, wrapped around Kawakami, who was just kind of holding on for dear life, and Shaq's jumping up and down going, Kawakami asked a good question. Kawakami asked a good question um, in this in this mock celebration. Um, it was hilarious. It was harrowing. Uh, it's phenomenal. My version of that um, was, I think it was a, couple of years later and i don't have again i do not recall what the topic was all i remember is that we were in dallas um at the american airlines center in dallas and i asked something that Shaq objected to and rather than you know curse me out or walk away or whatever else this is at shoot around so there's very few people there um but it was just like the beat writers, maybe a couple of, of uh, TV, local TV stations. Shaq just leaned over and grabbed me and threw me over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes. So I'm now like over his shoulder. I'm looking down his backside with my notepad in one hand and my recorder in the other hand, just again, holding on for dear life, trying not to drop my stuff and wondering uh, how this is going to end. Um, he eventually put me down. So. I, I gotta say I, I thought this I thought one of these stories was gonna be heading towards uh, Shaq stuffing somebody in a locker. I could see him doing that and some other. Not pranks. literally, but that like that's the equivalent. Like stuffing the athlete stuffing the the nerd in the locker. Like that's the 1950s trope or whatever. Like this is the NBA Shaq version of it. Essentially, is Shaq just you know um, uh, <laughs> uh, treating us to some kind of uh, physical um, move that makes us momentarily wonder uh, whether we've just made some really bad decisions in life. But um, yeah, so there were a couple of those. Um, Kobe was never like that. You know, Kobe was was the quieter of the two overall. Um, more, you know, Kobe was great one-on-one and, you know, we would chit-chat sometimes. This is, again, this is back when, you know, <laughs> two things that are very different now. One, um, it's rare for the stars just to be hanging out and just chit-chatting, right? Everything is either a formal press conference or a scrum with a bunch of media and recorders are rolling and everything else. Um, back in the day, and, and our pregame locker room time was was bigger than we had 45 minutes in the pregame locker room. Today, it's 30. And guys were sometimes even there back then. Not always. 
But I remember we were in Vancouver, no, not Vancouver, Memphis. It was a Grizzlies, definitely, uh, but Memphis, not Vancouver. We were in Memphis one day, pregame, and we were just in the locker room, just kind of shooting the shit pregame. And Kobe had had this, this commercial. It was not the one where he leaps over the car. It was another one. I can't remember if this was Nike deal or something else where he, I don't know, he like leaps like from half court to dunk or something. And we were just chatting about it because it just co- had come out and he was explaining to me like, you know, some of the, the process behind it. Um, that was the thing I ever wrote about. We were just, just shooting the shit. Cause you could do that back then. Um, and, um, so he was just, he was just, you know, fun to talk to. Uh, it was, it was never as, um, like I say, harrowing as, as some of these things with Shaq. Um, and he wasn't, he wasn't as the, the jokester that Shaq was. Um, but you know, just, just more, more, you know, interesting conversational moments with him. I, you know, these are, I, I could see Kobe being more reserved. Shaq obviously is a, a, a funny guy and a, and a prankster at that. Um, he had some interesting pranks for those who don't know, like Google like Shaq pranks with the sons that were, uh, interesting. I think on my end, I remember, um, one year I went into the locker room. This was, before, this was technically before I was a beat writer, but one of the most memorable interactions I ever had with a player was ironically Kevin Garnett when he was with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, you talk about how people aren't usually in the locker room. And I remember, uh, it was right before they closed the locker room and I was, I was leaving and I saw Kevin Garnett and I just, I just went up to him to introduce myself. Cause you know, when do you have a chance to really do that? Like you say in a scrum or uh, a press conference setting. And I have family, I have cousins in Minnesota that live in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I, I just mentioned uh, to Kev that uh, Kevin that, and, and we were talking about that and he had to go, but before he went, um, you know, he scared the crap out of me. He like pounded on his chest and was like, always got love for Minnesota, baby. And he just like sticks out like this fist. And again, this is a guy that's like a foot taller than me. Um, I've never seen a guy like go from zero to like 90 that quick with a reaction. We're just having a, a casual conversation and he just gets fired up about Minnesota. Um, just by saying like, yo, I, I had some relatives there. And I was like, I could see why people are intimidated by you um, in the paint because you just made me like almost poop myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but y- you also, y- you mentioned too about that uh, with the Lakers going back to them. We touched a little bit on 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 Shaq and Kobe behind the scenes. Um, I had had on Jeff Perlman too, who wrote about uh, a book on the Lakers and, and the Shaq and Kobe era. And I was curious Behind the scenes, you talked about how they kind of had some tension between the two, Shaq and Kobe. Were there instances where you saw that, uh, examples of that uh, with your own eyes, uh, covering them on a day-to-day basis? It wasn't the kind of thing where they're sniping at each other in front of us, right? Like we're in the locker room, we're, you know, pregame and postgame. We're at practices, we're at some shoot-arounds. Um, it, it's a tension you felt and it's a tension that came out in other ways where Shaq would say things. Shaq had this way of, of you know, uh, using kind of vaguely, barely coded language when he was pissed about Kobe's actions on the court. So you'd be there in post game, and Shaq would be, you know, saying things like, you know, uh, you know, guys will have to take an ill-advised shots. And if he was saying guys are taking ill-advised shots, he might have meant everybody. He might have meant everybody who's a jump shooter, everybody who's not him. 
who who could just power through, you know, 15, not that there are 15 players on the court, but if he had to power through 15 people, he could because yeah. he's Shaq and he's big and he's strong. That's a good Shaq but, impersonation. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so he would say things like that. He would say that guys taking ill advised shots. And at one point that was about Eddie Jones and Kobe, and it was, or it might've been about Nick Van Exel. And then eventually it was about Kobe and, you know, who knows, could have been about Derek Fisher, but it was basically like, get me the damn ball. The basic basic message was, I'm the biggest, baddest MFer out there, and I'm going to dunk on everybody, and I'm the highest percentage option we have. Why are you jacking up, you know, one-legged? He, he at one point made a reference one year, I remember, to, you know, guys taking these one-legged Rex Chapman shots or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he would say things like that, and often that was a shot at Kobe, uh, you know. Um, and he'd have other other little phrases he'd use, too. Um, you know, things like, you know, uh, he, he would say things like, um, you know, I, I've never been a jump shooter, but I'll, you know, I'll, all I know is if, if jump, jump, shots off on, you know, God, mix it up, take it to the, take it to the rack, you know, find another way, blah, whatever. And it would stuff like that. Um, and those were usually kind of these passive aggressive shots at Kobe. Um, and Kobe never did it in re in reverse. The, Kobe did famously, eventually, I think in their final season, have that statement that he issued through Jim Gray, which was always very strange because we never heard Kobe say it. It wasn't on camera or anything, but Jim Gray just said, I have a statement from Kobe. And it was like three, four paragraphs long, and it was just an absolute, just unmitigated slaughtering of everything, uh, calling out Shaq on everything. That, that like it, it was like he had saved this up for years, and it was about Shaq delaying his toe surgery and and burning part of the season to recover from it, and Shaq not being in shape, and and this and that, and you know Kobe considered himself, I think accurately, much more committed to the game. Kobe like lived and breathed it, and and was just obsessive about it, and Shaq wasn't. That was the big difference between them more than anything else was that they were just wired differently, and that's that that underlies all the other tension about shots and control of the offense and all this other stuff. So Kobe generally did not say things on a day-to-day -day basis, but he did issue that one broadside via Jim Gray. I think it was in 2003. Um, so no, I, I, to answer your question, we never saw it. There would be other times too, where they were trying to defuse it. I remember we we're in the pregame locker room one day. Um, again, this is a home game at Staples where Kobe had just had a commercial come out. It was for Sprite in which Kobe is imagining himself in all these other different jobs. If I weren't a basketball player and he's like, he's a farmer and he's a, I don't know, butcher. He's a, what I, it was not a butcher. Farmer was definitely one of them though. And so it's, it, they're, they're putting all these different, um, you know, you know, clothes on Kobe and putting him in different places. Right. And, and, and I think farmer was one of them. And so I think it was about that commercial and Shaq comes into the locker room and starts making fun of him. So they start making fun of each other's commercials. Um, there was one where Sha I, I can't remember what the commercial was for, but Shaq is in a commercial back then where the dog comes and steals like something out of his hand, a piece of paper out of his hand, like almost like the dog ate my homework kind of thing. But the dog is named Brick and Shaq is yelling Brick to, to, to the dog <laughs> to try to get him to bring the thing back. And Kobe and Shaq are like making fun of each other's commercials. And so it was this fun light moment that it was like, are they really just kind of like goofing on each other in a genuine way? Or is this them do, putting on a little bit of a show in front of the media to try to like downplay any of the tension that was going on at that time? You know, things like that, I kind of remember. But, um, but there's, when you, you know, when you saw the issues with them, it was mostly about things that were said outside of, you know, the other's earshot. It was an interview given. It was, you know, 
you know, something else, or it was sometimes on the court itself where you could just, you know, see a look sometimes. You know, I wanted to give you the floor too on something you brought up earlier about the Carl Malone and Gary Payton uh, season. It, it, you brought up a, uh, an accurate point. They went to the finals that year and they lost, but it, it, the way it was made out to be was it was this like failure because they were such favorites on paper. Um, and for Carl Malone at the time, it would have represented that missing championship uh, that he ultimately never got. Um, when you look at that one season in particular, I mean, again, there's a lot of interesting seasons you had on the beat, but but I, I definitely think that was interesting. What stuck out to you about that season uh, for the Lakers with Carl Malone and Gary Payton that year, uh, two, two aging stars at that time, and the dynamic behind the scenes with that quartet of Shaq, Kobe, Carl Malone, and Gary Payton behind the scenes. Yeah, and 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 there's a bunch of stuff there, so I'll I'll try to um, limit myself so that we're not here for the next three hours. But um, the first thing is that when they first got Malone and Gary Payton, obviously it's a huge deal. You know, Shaq and Kobe have got this supporting cast that you know people may be familiar with, right? Derek Fisher, Rick Fox, Robert Ori, for you know, the, especially the the, the three Pete. Um, those were the main guys, and you know, guys like Brian Shaw and Ron Harper. But they were built around the the, the veteran. Uh, or the supporting cast was was largely veterans and older veterans, and some of them had kind of aged out or were on their way to aging out. Carl Malone was still just kicking people's asses in Utah um, before he decided to leave there for the Lakers. And Gary Payton, though late in his career, was still playing at a very high level too. So getting two more stars to support Shaq and Kobe at a time when their supporting cast was eh, getting a little bit shaky um, was a big deal. But you know, they lose to the Pistons in the finals. And the reason that people have misinterpreted this over time is partially because of the contrast, right? The Pistons were the team that had no stars, at least at that time, right? You know, Ben Wallace is now in the Hall of Fame. Chauncey Billups may yet make the Hall of Fame. Rip Hamilton was the best mid-range shooter of his time, the Reggie Miller uh, of the mid-range, essentially. Um, and uh, Rasheed Wallace was was just a basketball savant who just didn't put up the numbers to get the kind of attention. And Tayshaun Prince was, that was, you know, he was young in his career, but as a phenomenal wing defender, they had a lot of talent. They just didn't have established, recognized talent. By the way, also on that team that beat the Lakers that year in the finals, won Darvin Ham. Um, so the Pistons, because it was this three musketeers kind of thing, all for one, one for all, versus the big bad Lakers of four future Hall of Famers, the the results ended up leading to some bad conclusions, one of which was, oh, well, these guys, you know, the the, the Pistons were the, the consummate team because they were no there were no stars and they were all just playing for each other. Somewhat true. And and to their credit, like that was a, a a great team that was the classic better than the sum of their parts team. But they beat the Lakers also in part because those four guys, it wasn't that the, that they didn't have enough basketballs to go around for the four Hall of Famers. And so they didn't have enough basketballs to go around for the same two guys that have been fighting for the last seven years by that point, which was Shaq and Kobe. Um, if you wanted to, to find like the, the bottoming out point of their relationship, that was almost literally it. And, and, you know, Shaq was traded a few weeks after those, that finals ended. Um, they were just done with each other. And Shaq uh, in that series, now Shaq was not at his absolute peak at that point. But Shaq in that series, I'm, I'm trying to look it up in real time here while we're talking. Um, Shaq's 
effective field goal percentage in that series was 631. Um, Shaq was still like just kicking people's butts when he got the ball, but he wasn't getting it that much because Kobe was just calling his own shots all the time in that series. Kobe shot, it was his worst. I, I think I wrote it at the time that it was his worst field goal percentage. Yeah, Shaq shot 63% from the floor. Kobe shot 38% in that series. I think it was his worst postseason series to date in his career at that point. Um, and so that was part of it. And Kobe was well-guarded, well-challenged by Tayshaun Prince and Chauncey Billups and anybody else they threw at him. And besides that, Carl Malone was hurt. Carl Malone was hurt, and everybody kind of ignores this part of it. He only played in four of the five games. Um, he averaged 31 minutes in that series. He had missed a lot of the regular season because uh, of a freak accident where um, I think it was Scott Williams fell into him, hurt Malone's knee. Malone had been an Iron Man, had barely missed a you know he'd missed a handful of games his entire career. And it wasn't that he was breaking down at that age; it was that there was a freak accident where somebody fell into him early in the season, knocks him out for three months. And Carl Malone is the guy that was holding. Shaq and Kobe, the, holding the team together and keeping Shaq and Kobe from, you know, beating the heck out of each other uh, early in that season. Also, that's the season where Kobe's facing sexual assault charges in Colorado. So they have that hanging over them. So there's all these other things. Gary Payton didn't want to play in the triangle. He hated the triangle, but he had signed there to, to play for Phil Jackson. He should have kind of known. But Gary Payton, uh, that like if there was one player who didn't fit, it was Peyton. He didn't fit with the triangle and rebelled against it in a, in a way. Didn't just didn't wasn't comfortable with it. So you have Peyton kind of going his own direction. You have Shaq and Kobe not wanting anything to do with each other. You have Carl Malone getting hurt and missing most of the regular season and not being healthy in the finals. And then you have the supporting cast just eroding before our eyes. You had an, an older Horace Grant and an older Rick Fox, and you know guys are just just kind of you know, eroding before our eyes. Slava Medvedenko is, ends up in there playing big minutes trying to guard Rashid Wallace. <laughs> like, um, So it's not to take anything away from the Pistons who absolutely earned that championship. It's just to say that when people say that this is an example of having too many stars, eh, not really. It was still in the end, at the end of the day, mostly about Shaq and Kobe. And to an extent, it was about just the state of the Lakers in general at that moment. And Howard, you mentioned that that ended up being the end for... Shaq and Kobe together. It was also the end of your time covering the Lakers. And then you pivoted to the Big Apple and, and the New York Knicks from 2004 to 2013. And uh, two distinct eras that I think stood out there, uh, the Larry Brown and Stephon Marbury era with Isaiah Thomas and kind of that Mike D'Antoni, Carmelo Anthony, Jeremy Lin uh, short-lived era as well. Um, I'll start with you on, on Larry Brown and, and Stefan Marbury with Isaiah Thomas. Um, I had Eddie Curry on the podcast previously and, and he had some fun stories about the two of those guys, uh, kind of going at it during the season and, um, ironically being neighbors and having like essentially backyards attached to each other, which I think was just like the extra wood on the fire. Um, being around those guys every day, the uh, uh, with Larry Brown and Stephon Marbury, you, you talk about things being said in the media. You know, you touched on some things that like Shaq would say about Kobe and vice versa. Um, they certainly went at it um, <laughs> together in the uh, media. I was curious from your standpoint, what was it like behind the scenes with uh, Larry Brown and, and Stephon Marbury during that time with the 
Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, I mean that that era was just madness. Um, so I, I I got a job with the New York Times in two thousand four. So that's when I leave LA for New York, and and it was to cover the Knicks. And you know, I Isaiah had been hired like the previous December. I come in in the fall of of two thousand four. He'd been hired in two thousand uh, December two thousand three, I think. And immediately his the, that was the first movie made. Right, it was the big splash in trading for Stefan Marbury, big happy homecoming, all this stuff. So the first season I'm covering is is Lenny Wilkins. Lenny gets fired a couple months into the season. Herb Williams finishes out the season, um, and and then they they go out and they get Larry Brown, another big celebrated homecoming. Larry Brown, New York guy, Long Island guy, um, and man, I I just I had no idea what I had gotten myself <laughs> into. I mean, look, the job was the was you know it's a job for the New York Times like I'm not going to say no to that and it was covering the Knicks and the, you know obviously storied franchise um, the contrast uh, from the team I had been covering in LA to this it was just it was just wild because yeah the Shaq and Kobe era could be really rocky but they're also winning at the highest level they're going to finals four out of the five last years that I covered them and they're winning three championships in a row and I'm seeing some of the greatest basketball in history and you know, possibly just ask Shaq the best guard center combo in NBA history. Um, there was nothing to balance it out on the Knicks beat, right? There was no, there was no great basketball to kind of counterbalance just the days of mayhem. And there was just so much mayhem. So you mentioned Marbury and Larry Brown. That's in the 2004, five season when Larry Brown, uh, coached, um, or excuse me, five, six. Um, but the, the conflict wasn't just Larry Brown and and Stefan Marbury. It's they eventually make a trade for Steve Francis. And Larry Brown had thought he was going to play Steve Francis off of Marbury, but Marbury and Francis ended up kind of like bonding and uniting against Larry Brown. And meanwhile, Isaiah Thomas is having issues with Larry Brown and Isaiah Thomas is having issues with Stefan Marbury. So the three biggest figures in the franchise, the franchise point guard, Marbury, the decorated Hall of Fame head coach, Larry Brown, the Hall of Fame team president, Isaiah Thomas. At any given time, it was either Larry versus Isaiah, Larry versus Marbury, Marbury versus Isaiah, or everybody against everybody. It was just, it was utter mayhem. The 0506 season, like that whole era was kind of a shit show, but um, that 0506 season with with Larry Brown um, at the helm was the the peak of it all. Uh, and then he gets fired after one year. Uh, the, the owner, Jim Dolan, so, tells Isaiah Thomas, this is, you know, your... Your, I can't remember what the analogy was. It was something about you know groceries and having to now make the dinner or something. But it was basically like, this is your roster, and you're telling me that it's Larry Brown's fault, so you go fix it. You go coach. So then Isaiah coaches the next couple of years, and then eventually he gives way to the the Donnie Walsh, Mike D'Antoni era. Um, it was just, just so much drama and so much tumult and so much turnover and so much politicking. The Garden, it feels like more than any other... Uh, you know, I, I refer to the Gordon, obviously I'm referring to the Knicks, but that franchise just seems to have more internal politicking than any other team in the league. And it's not to say that that doesn't exist elsewhere, but just the, you know, the, the backroom drama, um, you know, uh, and the, the, you know, uh, what's that? The palace intrigue is the phrase I'm looking for was so much greater and so much more just layered and ongoing at the garden than certainly the years I covered the Lakers, though they had their share of, of palace intrigue themselves. Um, and the Knicks just, I think more than any other team in the league over the years. Um, and so Marbury, you know, Marbury would say things about Larry Brown, Larry Brown would say things about Marbury. Um, sometimes it was a little bit, you know, 
coded more often than not. It was actually just head on. There was a day where I think Larry Brown might have said something at post game the night before. Shoot around Marbury fires back. Pre game Larry Brown fires back at Marbury. Like it just we're constantly going from one to the other, saying, uh, "Hey, hate to have to ask you this, but um, you know the other guy just said this," <laughs> and and it would drive the garden crazy because they they have a rule um, that goes back to previous eras where no one from the Knicks organization or the garden is supposed to say anything disparaging about anybody else in public. Um, this was like an actual policy that was like on the books and it, it, it drove them crazy. This with this more than anything, um, you know, more than the losing, they hated when people were saying things that, you know, might actually be true, especially about each other. Uh, I think the thing I'm most surprised that you, with what you shared is that, Stephon Marbury and Steve Francis teaming up against Larry Brown because I thought that was a horrible fit oh, in yeah. a backcourt with two ball dominant guys. And Terrible Steve, idea. Yeah, it was the equivalent of the it was the backcourt version of pairing Eddie Curry and Zach Randolph in the front court. Just didn't make sense. Um, two also guys, do, two guys <laughs> do the same thing, but. Uh, Last kind of Knicks one for me. You touched on the D'Antoni era with uh, with Donnie Walsh. Uh, Donnie Walsh, great man, um, I, and, I, and I thought he did a good job trying to bring the Knicks back to uh, relevancy. And as part of that, they get Carmelo Anthony once again, another hometown, you know, homecoming, a kid, uh, you know. Originally, a, uh, I know he had Baltimore ties, but uh, there is the Brooklyn connection with Car Carmelo Anthony. He always wanted to come home to the Knicks. Um, I, during your time, I think one of the more interesting storylines was the, dy the dynamic between Carmelo Anthony, and you had Amari Stoudemire at the time as well, but Jeremy Lin came out of nowhere and was probably the greatest sports story there for a couple of weeks. Um Iconic stuff. And I'm curious in that era, what was the relationship like behind the scenes truly between Carmelo Anthony and Jeremy Lin? And I was curious if there was anything there with Melo and Amari. So Jeremy Lin's breakout comes while both Amari and Carmelo are hurt. Amari comes back during the Lin Sanity run, during the, still the peak of it. Uh, if I recall correctly, Mello was out for for a longer period. Um, part of why Lin Sanity happened, part of it is that they'd run out of other point guards, and and literally they, they it was like, well, I guess we'll just you know throw this kid out there, the guy who got cut twice in the preseason. We picked up right around Christmas as an emergency, you know, backup break, you know, break glass in case of emergency. Um, but part of the reason Jeremy breaks out too is that you know all their all their best options were were also hurt for a period of that time. Um, Amari loved playing with Jeremy. And in part because Amari, of course, was a disciple of Mike D'Antoni. Mike D'Antoni, you know, the seven seconds or less offense that Steve Nash so famously brought to life in Phoenix and made the Suns the most entertaining team in the NBA and one of the best teams in the NBA. They don't win a championship, of course, but they have a four-year run that was 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 just fantastic and, and and highly successful. Two conference finals in that time. And Amari's part of that, right? So when Amari comes to New York to play for D'Antoni, Amari's all on board with what Mike D'Antoni's about philosophically, that the ball moves, the ball finds energy, as D'Antoni used to always say. And um, so Amari 
loved that period of time, loved that Linsanity run, and loved any time that they were more running Mike's offense. Carmelo did not exactly like Mike's offense, and Carmelo and Mike D'Antoni eventually, you know, it, 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 that 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 relationship eroded so badly that D'Antoni officially resigned. Whether people want to say that was a firing, pushed, shoved, asked, whatever. When D'Antoni resigns and and it turns it over to Mike Woodson, it's primarily because, or almost entirely because, his 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 relationship with Carmelo just was non-existent. Because Mike wanted the ball to move, and Carmelo wanted to do what Carmelo does, which is a lot of isolation and a lot of pounding the ball. So Carmelo was not as as much on board. And I think you know, look, it, it's it's been written about in the past, but Carmelo, you know, there was a little bit of resentment there. Jeremy Lin was the toast, not just of New York, but of the whole basketball world, of the world world. He was on magazine covers, you know, around the globe for this magical run. And Carmelo was the guy who would come home as the conquering hero. And they play the, you know, um, you know, um, the, you know, that uh, the you're coming home song uh, when, when Melo made his debut at the garden um, back in 2012. 11, 11. Um, and yeah, I think there was a little bit of resentment there. And when Jeremy Lin gets the poison pill contract offer from the Rockets as a restricted free agent, which the Knicks chose not to match, Carmelo went on record saying, referring to the contract as that crazy contract. It was something along those lines. It's not the exact words, but it, he said something like that crazy contract that he got. Players never say that about each other's contracts, but, you know, Carmelo disparaged the contract. And I think J.R. Smith did too, if I recall correctly. And so I think there was, you know, low-key some some resentment there. Um, you know, I think Jeremy himself has probably addressed it over the years. It's been, and it's definitely been written about. Um and Amari and Carmelo, you asked about. Amari and Carmelo never really saw eye to eye. Um, and, you know, Amari wanted to do things the Mike D'Antoni way. And so that 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 explains it all right there. Carmelo wanted to do things the way that that benefited his game the most. Amari loved D'Antoni's system and had had thrived in it in Phoenix and New York. And so, you know, and, and, and Amari got to New York first, right? Like he signed with the Knicks. In 2010, pulls on a Knicks cap and famously says, the Knicks are back, baby. And it was like the brightest moment they'd had in years at that moment, even though he was the consolation prize in some respects, right? They were they wanted LeBron. They wanted Dwayne Wade. They wanted Chris Bosh. All the guys who ended up in Miami together. Um, they they've, you know chased Joe Johnson. That was this huge free agent class. They got Amare with his you know suspect knees that did eventually erode. Um, but he was the biggest star they'd gotten you know since the ill-fated Marbury deal. And, you know, that was that was a moment and it lasted all of a few months before they make the trade for Carmelo. And now they're trying to fit the two of them together. So it just never really clicked. Um, nice idea, but it, it never really clicked. Uh, well said. You know, I, I think people forget for like half, I want to say half of Amari's first season. He looked like an MVP candidate. I uh, was oh, yeah. up the best numbers of his career. And then uh, he got an all star appearance. And then, uh, yeah, like you touched on the knees. Um Howard, I certainly appreciate the time, but I wanted to leave you with this. Um, as a guy who's been a beat writer for a long time and a guy that's done obviously national stuff as well, but I think you and I know this very well, uh, being a part of the Pro Basketball Writers Association, there are a lot of young beat writers uh, in today's game that are covering well, uh, you know, each team. And... 
I'm I'm curious, and I know I've gotten this from some younger guys as well, whether it's about covering a team or how to develop sources. In all your years of experience, I'm curious, what is the best advice you have for a young beat writer or someone that is trying to get into our field and, and do what we do? Wow. Um, it's a great question, Michael. And I, I mean, we could, again, we could go for another three hours just on, you know, the industry and, and changes over the years that I've been doing this and, and um, how best to, to break in and best, you know, work habits and everything. Um, so I'd, I'll, I'll try to just hit a couple of, of, of brief ones. I mean, nothing can replace curiosity. Like that is the key to all journalism, all good reporting, all good storytelling. It is just having is it just a, a natural curiosity and then and then following up with that curiosity by asking questions. Um, I think too many people, I don't want to say too many people. I think there are some people who get into this and I'll, I'll limit this to the NBA because this is my realm. I don't know how it goes in the NFL or baseball or other beats, but like, so people get into it because they just want to write about basketball. And so I think some people think, well, the, the idea is to be a basketball expert. And, and, and that's fine. That is a model to write about the NBA. But I have always taken the approach that I'm not an expert on basketball. My job is to talk to the experts. That's what journalism is. I, you know, I covered local government for years before I you know, moved back to sports. And I was not an expert on civil engineering or tax policy or land use planning. But I had these city council members and city staffers and development experts and consultants. And these are the people that I talk to. My, my job is not to be an expert on these, these issues that, that are about how, how a city is run. It's to talk to the experts and then distill that and put it in a, in a coherent format in a story so that the readers, who also happen to be residents of that city and taxpayers and whatever, the constituents, they can understand these policies because I did a de good enough job as a journalist in talking to the experts and then explaining it. I feel the same about basketball. I've been covering it for 25 years. I'm not a basketball expert. I'm, I'm, I'm just a reporter who covers basketball. And my job is to be curious and to listen and to not assume I know it all, but to ask the people who know this stuff because they're paid to do that. I'm not paid to be an expert on whether Victor Wembanyama is truly going to be the next great superstar. I don't know. Looks pretty good to me. I'm sure he looks pretty good to everybody who's queued him up on YouTube. <laughs> but there are scouts and GMs who are paid very well. Well, the GMs are paid well. Scouts are not paid enough. But um, but who are, like that's their entire living is to evaluate these guys. I, my job is not to evaluate them and try to figure out who's going to be the next big thing or who's going to be the next great 3 and D player or whatever. Like My job is to write about the sport. So I think... Keeping a, a certain, um, you know, grounding in, in in mind that that you know we are here to observe, analyze, write, and ask the right questions. That's the job, and then you know do it do it respectfully, um, do it fairly. Doesn't mean you never criticize. Doesn't mean you never ask tough questions. In fact, you have to do those things, but you can do it all in a respectful way, in a fair way. And if you criticize, criticize from a position of 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 uh, sound analysis and knowledge, not from, you know, a, a position of just, you know, cheap shots or, you know, uh, broad strokes that, that, that are, you know, that are, that are not based on, on, on the reality that you can show in front of you that you can't back up. Right. It's so, um, 
I don't even really that much like the blurring that we've had between the straight journalism part of this and the commentary part of it, but we're all now called on to do do everything. There was a time when there was a little bit more strict boundaries where it's like, you're either covering this as kind of a news writer or you're a commentary person. Now we all do a little of everything and it it, it does create some, uh, I think some, uh, some issues now and then, but um, yeah, uh, be tough, but be fair. Um there's that line in Almost Famous when Lester Bangs is is uh, telling the kid, you know, uh, be merciless, and you know that that there's a, there's an aspect of that too. You know, you, you, we're not here to, to idol worship or to you know uh, prop everybody up. Yeah, these are everybody's athletic heroes, and they are elite at what they do, and they're incredible, and they're fun to watch, and it's it's fun to cover them. But the the job is not to you know. Uh, simply put everybody up on a pedestal. It's to ask the tough questions. And sometimes that means like saying, you know, Hey, you went two for 18. Do you, you, you know, maybe you forced a few of those, um, you know, and, 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 you know, be prepared to get, uh, you know, a, a nasty retort now and then it happens. But if you're doing the job, right. Sometimes you're going to piss people off players, coaches, GMs, whoever. Um, but you, you still do it from a position of starting with, with a, a, a position of, re, of respect, and fairness. Um, and I think the rest takes care of itself. I respect it a little more um, tact to it than saying to somebody, you know, you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a boat. What happened out there? Um, I yeah, think that, that would be a bad way to start. <laughs> no, I swear. I saw that once at, uh, I remember this at a Knicks game. Well, long, uh, how many years ago? Ricky Lito of all people. You remember him? Yeah. Somebody went up to him and said, now you shot this for this. What, what are you doing out there? And I was like, damn, bro. Like Ricky <laughs> Lito is barely an NBA player. You know, it's the end of the season. Like that, I just, I, that was a, an interesting one to me, but I, I appreciated your insight certainly on uh, the Lakers and the Knicks, but particularly uh, for me personally, obviously in the business, um, your advice on it, because it's been an ever changing, um, profession over the years, certainly, let alone for decades as you've, uh, you've covered it. I feel like for myself, this is year 12 for me. And I feel like every year it's almost totally been different, let alone with COVID zoom and, um, trying to build sources and, and, uh, different access rules and things like that. It, it always seems like to me, you have to always be constantly, learning and adapting and adjusting. And, and, and the second you feel like you're settled and you got it, you don't, you're there's, there's more to do, um, and always more to, to work on. But, um, brother, I, I appreciate your time. And, uh, the book is out for those who want to check it out. You know, you can get it on Amazon, Kindle, you know, your local Barnes and Nobles, anywhere there's books, go check it out. Uh, you have the code as well that Howard touched on up in the transcript on hoopshype.com. We can get 30% off by going to triumphbooks.com for that. And Howard, I look forward to seeing you uh, at more games during the uh, season coming up here shortly, my man. I will be seeing you in the press room sometime soon for sure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
Oh, my pleasure. And I also want to thank everyone else for tuning in. If you want to hear more episodes of the Hoops High podcast with guest appearances from NBA players, coaches, executives, and media members such as Howard Beck, you can like and subscribe to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can keep up with my tweets on Twitter at Mike A. Scotto. Make sure you're following Howard as well. He's at Howard Beck. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael Scotto, wishing you and yours all the best. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.